Let's finish out this morning's Red Letter Living. The words of Jesus in many of our Bible uh, are written in red letter, and these are the words that should be shaping our life, good and bad, the ways we want and the ways we don't want. We take Jesus for what he says, and we apply it to our lives. Just a reminder of where we've been in this series. Uh, We started off with two easy but not simple words, follow me, and the implications that that means for the people who he said it to in front of their face and the people thousands of years later of what it means to follow Jesus. You are, the next one is, you are the salt of the earth. We talked about that our responsibility as Christians is to go into the world and to make it better, to preserve it, to heal it, to cleanse it. The next one was, I will give you rest, 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 something that we need, isn't it? Many of us coming here on Sunday, we feel drained, and we just had the weekend to recharge, and yet we're constantly looking for rest, and Jesus says, I'm giving it to you. It's right in front of you if you're willing to take it. Our next, our fourth in this series was, I have overcome the world, all of the world. The parts that seem like it's out of God's control and the part that seems completely under his control, it's all his, us included. The next one in the series was, nobody comes to the Father except through me. We talked about that hard truth for us to face sometimes. On battling this this wave of this new age religion of inclusivism and what it means to find the narrow gate and to walk through it. And then we moved, the last four in this series have moved to far more somber and impactful words of Jesus. First to start that off was the words, it is finished. Jesus finished something on the cross. So we talked about that. The next one in the series was, I am coming soon. To remind us of the hope that we have as Christians, the hope that Ola has As she waits to hear the angels sing to come take her home, because she knows Jesus will come soon. Last week, we talked about, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Radical forgiveness, the same forgiveness we have been called to extend to those around us. And this morning, as you just heard from Bryce, our summer intern, as she read to us Jesus' words, Not my will, but yours be done. Let this be the close of our sermon series, Red Letter Living, and let's pray as we prepare our hearts for it. Father God, we are completely open to what you have to reveal to us this morning. God, we pray that your spirit is with us, that we can feel your presence in this room and as we work through this text. God, I pray that this this message, that it not only impacts those in this room, it impacts me, that I am Uh, convicted of the words, God, that I need to pray on a regular basis, not my will, yours be done, Father. And so I pray it right now as I prepare to deliver the words that you've given me, as we prepare our hearts and our ears for what we're about to hear together, not our will, yours be done, Father. In your wonderful name of Jesus, your Son, that we pray. Amen. If you missed any of those lessons, you can find them on our website, verobeach.church. You can find all of our lessons on there. So throughout history, there have been a number of great battles. 605 BC, this is the Battle of Carchemish. It was a battle between, on one side, the Egyptians and partnered with uh, the Assyrian nation. Uh, This was before Jesus. This is way before Jesus, 600 so years before him. Um, 
and the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they were fighting against the then-conquering nation of Babylonia. Uh, and this was a turning point battle. This is one of those battles that turns the, the wave of the war in the other direction. You can actually read about this battle in Ezekiel chapter 30. Uh, this historical battle, you can, I'll, I'll, I won't give you any spoilers, and we're not going to read it this morning, but later on today, go to Ezekiel chapter 30. You'll get to read about this battle right here. We have other battles. You have the Battle of Waterloo. This is the battle that ended not only Napoleon's 100-day war, but it ended a 23-year-old strife between France and the rest of the European nation. The English unit was about 68,000 men, partnered with the Prussians, which was about 47,000, numbering one side to over 100,000 men to fight in this war. On the other side was Emperor of France, Napoleon, and his 72,000 men. And the Battle of Waterloo was one of the battles in that war that completely decimated the French army of 25,000 casualties, ending the war and casting Napoleon off to island of St. Helena where he would die six years later. And now the term Waterloo is often used to mean a disastrous defeat of any nature. But it was a turning point in the war that turned the tide of the outcome. Now there's a number of battles that we could reference, and those who are most intimate with battle, those who are on the, the commanding side, generals and commanders, whenever they write about battle, all of them talk about a moment in the war. It's usually in a certain battle, and they talk about a window of opportunity. A decision within that window has to be made. And it, you could go either way. You can make the right decision, you can make the wrong decision, but the decision you make in that window not only impacts that battle, but it impacts the entire war. It can turn the tide, it can change who is on top of the war. It's in a certain window. In the Garden of Eden, there was a battle being fought. You have the first representatives of God, and I know this doesn't look like a war scene, but a battle is happening in this picture. You have Adam, who's the one sitting there. We say Adam, but Adam in Hebrew means dirt. So you have the person made from the dirt, Adam. And you have with him Eve, which is the female on the tree. Eve in Hebrew means life. So you have dirt or earth, and you have life coming together, and they make humanity. And that is our story. And they have a window of opportunity here. This is a battle being fought, and in this moment we have a picture of them losing that battle and the war being shifted the other direction. In another garden, the garden we're going to spend time in this morning, another battle was being fought. This time it was Jesus Christ fighting the battle. And he equally found himself in a window of opportunity to make a choice. And Jesus decided to choose not his will, but the will of his Father. And Jesus won that battle, ultimately leading and turning the wave to win the war. And it's that window, it's that garden, it's this moment that we're going to spend time in this morning. And here is that window right here. We just read it. But I want you to read it with fresh eyes this morning. 
taking all what we've said into consideration. Matthew 26, 38 through 39. Then he said to them, okay, who are we talking about? That's Jesus said to his disciples. This is after uh, the Lord's, the Last Supper has happened, the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. Jesus has broken bread and poured wine for those, and he has shifted what they do in Passover, not to be about something they're reflecting on on old, but something that they're going to use, like we did this morning, to remember what Jesus is about to go and do. Jesus has already washed his disciples' feet. He's already called out some of his disciples to betray him. One of them runs. The other one denies it, but it's all the same. They leave that meal, they go to a mountain full of olive trees, and they're singing songs on their way, not knowing what's to come. Only one person truly knows, and here's what he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, watch with me. Now, we're not going to get into this part of the story, but the disciples, they fail at keeping watch. <laughs> They're far, their eyelids win, and they fall asleep multiple times, but Jesus goes and does what he said he's going to do. He goes, and he falls on his face, and he prays, and listen to these words, the cry and prayer of a desperate man. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So to give light, uh, something interesting, some light to this very dark scene, let's break down exactly how this story fits into the larger story of the Bible. So we, we've already kind of touched on it, but let's touch on it again. The Bible opens with the scene of a garden. And we just talked about the Adam, Adam, the first human to come into that world, but it's not just Adam that comes into the world in that garden. It's also sin that comes with him. Now, sin, that seems like a church word. What, we don't use sin as often outside these walls. What is sin? Well, the Hebrew word, literally, literal definition of sin, literally just means to miss the mark. So you may be familiar with this illustration, but if you're not, imagine that you're pulling back a bow and arrow, you're aiming for the bullseye, and you release the arrow, and you missed the mark. You're aiming somewhere and you missed it. That's what it means to sin. Some of us really missed the mark. <laughs> Some of us at certain points in our life really missed the mark. Others of us just veer off a little bit, but it's equal. It is sin. It's missing the direction, the path, the bullseye that God desires for our life. So sin enters the garden. We had a choice and we missed the mark. Now let's fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible where we are introduced to yet another garden there. This is the garden that's going to be your future home. It's the garden of the new Jerusalem. Imagine life sprouting up from the ground all around you. Life coming from the ground, life coming from the trees, water flowing all over you're not supposed to be necessarily imagining a garden. You're supposed to be imagining a place where life is abundant and God can be in that space with you. In fact, his throne will be in that space and water will flow from that throne and give life to everything it touches. Two gardens, one at the beginning, one at the end, and right in the middle of them, you have the Garden of Gethsemane, where 
Like the first, you will have an Adam, the new Adam, or as Paul would call Jesus, the last Adam in this garden. So where sin entered in the first garden, it is the eradication of sin begins in the garden of Gethsemane. Where Adam hides because he is ashamed of his fault with God, Jesus fully presents himself and is faultless before God. I mean, you can do an entire study on just these three gardens, but for the, f- the sake of our red letters this morning, let this, this be said. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is playing an important role to the larger context of the entire story of the Bible, to our story and what it means for us. So let's talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. What is this specific garden that Jesus finds himself in that very dark night? So the Garden of Gethsemane is positioned on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. If you come out of Jerusalem, you would go down into the Kidron Valley, and as you moved up that western slope, at the very bottom is where you'd find the Garden of Gethsemane. That garden is littered with gnarled, dark trees that are called olive trees. There's a whole garden of olive trees on this mountainside. You can go visit it today. If you're to visit the Holy Land, take a tour. I have been to those gardens. Unfortunately, it was when I looked like that. (laughs) I just love being open and vulnerable with you guys every Sunday. It feels so good. But but you can see the gnarled trees in the back. In fact, we don't need to see this anymore. Let's just look at the trees. You can see the trees. You can see the the, the church of all nations in the back, a, a, a guy painting over here. Uh, you can see benches where you can stop and pray. You can still go to this garden. You can still see it. These trees, saplings of the tree that Jesus prayed under. Living, timeless witnesses of the miraculous events that happened in that garden that night. Of Jesus' prayer, his betrayal, his arrest leading to his crucifixion. These are olive trees. So olive trees play a very prominent role in this culture because they produce olive oil, which is a a hot commodity, especially during Jesus' time. It's used in all different practices of a regular life, from sacred sacred parts uh, like uh, worship, This was used for like anointing oil, olive oil was. It was used to something as basic as light. It's lighting oil. You would use it in uh, cooking and healing and cleaning. Every part of your life likely had some kind of impact with olive oil because that's how prominent it was. Now the word Gethsemane, it's literally just two Hebrew words put together. Got, which is the word for olive, And shemameh, which is the word to press or to crush. So this is quite literally the garden of the olive press. And still to this day, olives are being crushed in this garden, producing oil for the surrounding area. This is the garden of Gethsemane. Now here's what you need to know about this entire process and why I even bring it up. While the olive itself had value... Eating, decorating, planting, had plenty of value. The poorest of people could get their hands on a bag of olives. 
You can walk pretty much anywhere and find an olive tree on your path and pick a couple and grab a bag and find its way to the dinner table that night. Olives were abundant. It wasn't until the olive was crushed that the real value of the olive was produced in its oil. Now maybe you see where I'm going with this. Jesus was crushed for us. The true value in the crushing. Or as Isaiah would say it, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His punishment brought us peace. It was by his wounds that we find healing. Grace is what you should hear this in this. Grace was not cheap. It was not cheap. Now it's freely given. Paul talks about it in Ephesians as like a gift given to you, but just because it's something that can be freely received does not mean it was something that was freely given. It was given at a cost, a high cost of God's only son, Jesus, who was crushed for us. Now we talked about that process in great detail last week. You can go listen as you, we, list, we, uh, we talked about the first words that Jesus said on the cross as he went through that process. But while what happened on the cross was the war of death and sin being defeated, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was the battle and the window of opportunity. While what happened on the cross was the war being won, what happened in the garden was the battle being fought. And that is what we're talking about today, because you rob, you rob Jesus, and you say Jesus didn't have a choice in that garden because of his divine nature or his predestined appointment. A choice was made in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was a choice that had rippling effects on the human condition, but it was also a choice that models the choice that every single one of us has to make. So let's look at the choice that was made. Among the olive trees, Jesus is praying. Now, Jesus has prayed in desolate places before. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days and prayed. He's gone on the mountaintops by himself and prayed. He's been tempted and found himself on his knees in prayer. But Jesus has never felt desolation like this. And I can just imagine it. And I hope you can imagine it with me. Well, maybe not hope, because it's not a great image. But I can almost imagine as Jesus begins praying this prayer, a smile comes across Satan's face. Now, why would I say that? Because Satan knows if he can get Jesus to fail at this task, if he can get him to lose this battle, then the tide of the war will shift. Satan has done this before. He has tempted Jesus before. This isn't the first time. I mean, all the way from when Jesus was a baby, Satan was coming after him, trying to remove the threat and to get his way to God. When Jesus is in the desert and he's being tempted after those temptations and Jesus wins that battle, what does the text say? It says Satan then sits back and he's going to wait for a more opportune time. And there's other moments when Jesus and Satan are going to go head to head, but this seems like a pretty opportune time. Because if Satan can just whisper despair in Jesus' ears, if he can just plant some doubt, if he can get Jesus to look at the horror of the battle, then he won't recognize what he's doing through the war. If he can just 
detour Christ's attention, then maybe, maybe Satan can have victory against God. And so Jesus looks deeply into the Father's cup of the task that's at hand, and he is terrified. Everything in his human flesh tells him to begin running away from physical torture. I can imagine his spirit inside is yelling at him, uh, putting him in a place where he's going to forsake or be forsaken by the Father. Such was his distress over the very thing he came into the world to conquer and to do. And so in that desperation, Jesus cries out and hear it this way, My Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to die. If there's any other way, let it be. And Satan is cheering. The darkness of the world is closing in. Death and corruption seem to have won the war and won this battle once again. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't finished praying. How often have you quit about this point in the prayer? How many times have you stopped praying The world is too chaotic. The news is too bad. The pain is too real. The sacrifice is too great. You cry out to God, God, just remove this cup from me. I don't want it anymore. Or you blame God for putting you in that position in the first place. But Jesus, Jesus wasn't finished praying. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But, nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Not what I desire, God, but what you desire for me. Not as I will, but as you will. Eight words. Eight unfathomable words. You could drop an atomic bomb. You could feed poison to the devil, and it wouldn't be as devastating as these eight Words, eight words that reveal the heart of God, not just to Satan, not to the people who would read this later, but to all of us. Jesus is saying, my will, what I want, what I desire, what I will go after is my Father's will for me. God has given me a path to walk and I will walk it. If it's his will that I face rejection from my friends, then I will face rejection from my friends. Let his will be done. If it is God's will that I am betrayed by everybody who's supposed to be on my side, so be it. Not my will, yours be done. If it is God's will that those who I turn my back to strike it, those who I turn my beard to pluck it out, those who, those who I turn my face to spit in it, let God's will be done. Because here's what I know, Jesus says. In these eight words, here's what Jesus reveals to us. He says, I know when my Father's will is accomplished, on the other side of the trial, there is victory. Amen? On the other side of the crucifixion, there is resurrection. It might be the Father's will, Satan, that you bruise my heel now, but in three days, I'm going to walk outside of that borrowed tomb, and I will crush your head. And that, that is the will of the Father as well. So go ahead, beat my back, place a crown of thorns on my head, drive nails into my wrists and to my feet, pierce my side. But have you forgotten, Satan, 
what the Father's will is. Let me remind you, using those words from Isaiah again, I was pierced for their transgressions. I will be crushed for their iniquities. The punishment that they put on my shoulders is so that they can find peace. It's by my wounds that they find healing. And that, that is the Father's will. Jesus, having longed, even pled to be delivered from God's will, expressed in nine simple words his humble faith in and his submission to God's will that was more beautiful than all the glory in the created heavens and earth combined. Not my will, yours be done. And something else happens in that moment. A mystery comes into view. Jesus the Son, perfectly obedient to God the Father, from all eternity, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Like Nobody understands better than Jesus how difficult it is for a human being to submit themselves to the will of God. Nobody has suffered at a greater capacity than Jesus as somebody who submits themselves to the will of the Father. So what that means is that when Jesus says to follow me, the first in our series, at whatever cost it might be, he's not calling us to do something that he is not willful, that he would not willfully do or he hasn't done himself. And that is why we look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, the great high priest who understands far better than we do what it means to experience pain and suffering, but to also experience the Father's will on the other side, who experience excruciating and momentarily painful will of God for the eternal joy set before us. Luckily, as we talked last week, Jesus is now interceding for us, so we don't necessarily have to. Now, I have never had to surrender to God in such a dramatic way or painful, devastating way. God has never asked me to suffer terribly on my way to dying. But many times, Jesus has, or God has given me the opportunity to choose the will I believe he has for my life over what I desire in a certain moment. Whenever a mentor of mine told me that I had nothing of real value to add to others, and all I wanted to do was quit ministry outright, I had to pray this prayer. Father, I don't know what you want from me, but not my will, yours be done. When we lost our first baby in a miscarriage and had a couple of scares with the two God has given us, Darian and I had to pray this prayer many times. Not our will, Father, yours be done. When I've had ventures that I've gone into fall on their face, I've had to be humbled and say, not my will, God. What do you want from me? Whenever I face doubt, insecurity, whenever I face unsettledness, even today, today, I prayed this prayer. Father, not my will. Yours be done. Whatever it is, whatever it looks like, however nasty it might seem, and you can likely rattle off your own list of the times that life didn't go your way. 
It may be even more devastating than mine, and I'm sorry if it is. But are we praying this prayer? Because if there's one thing, one guarantee in life that we have, besides our Father loves us, is that life is not going to go your way. It's not going to go the way you expect. There is no way to plan. Why do you worry about tomorrow, Jesus says, for today has enough troubles of its own. And that's not an absence of God. That's a test. It's a window of opportunity to make a choice. And for some of you, it may be a choice that not only wins that battle, but could turn the tide to the entire war that's happening in your life. A decisive window to make a choice. We love Psalm 23, don't we? It's a great one, especially to memorize. Many of us have it memorized. If you don't know Psalm 23, you likely have heard it referenced. I'll start it off. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Amen? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters for his name's sake. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Just picture it if you can. He guides me along the right path. We talked about that earlier. For his name's sake. And then we get to verse 4. And I, I don't want to say we don't like verse 4. I think many of us, we don't know what to do with verse 4. Because it all sounds really nice leading up to that moment. Green pastures, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we get to, even though I walk through the darkest valley, wait, I thought my good shepherd was leading me. Why would a good shepherd lead me to a dark valley? Why do I experience the pain that I'm experiencing? Why am I some days overwhelmed with anxiety? I don't even want to get out of bed. Why am I so scared of the unknown? Why was Jesus in the garden in the first place? Why would a shepherd lead his flock into the dark valley? Well, if you talk to an actual shepherd who lives in the Middle East, they'll tell you that it's actually in the valley that the greenest grass is found. Because all of the rain that hits those mountains and rolls down the rocks finds its way into that valley where things can grow and life can be found. It is dark. It is intimidating for sheep. Shepherds often have to probe their sheep to get them down into the valley. And it's not until they are in the darkness of the valley, surrounded by lush grass, that they recognize the reason the shepherd led them down there in the first place. Luckily, Jesus knew what was waiting for him in the valley. He trusted God, his shepherd, the whole way there. Jesus won that battle so that we could follow in his footsteps. He went first so that the trail was beaten down so that we could follow the way he went. And it's not the world and the world's problems that we have to carry on our shoulders anymore. Jesus said, I took care of that on the cross. You can lay that down. The only thing that you have to carry on your shoulders now is your choice, your window of opportunity, and your life will turn into a chain of windows, a chain of choices that you make. Some of them have detrimental impact. Some of them may fall to the wayside, but we are constantly choosing, making a choice. So what is your choice? 
Do you choose the way of the Father? Not my will, Father, yours be done. Despite the difficulty that might be in front of me and the unknown that I feel, though I may walk through the valley as many times as I sit in the pastures, I will follow your will. Or do you continue to choose yours? Scraping to the top, hoping you just get lucky. You have a choice. You have a window, just like Jesus did. What is your choice? Let's pray about that choice today. Father God, we give it all to you. God, we recognize right here in this moment that we all have a choice, and we will be given other choices. We have a a choice to choose you. We have a choice to choose ourselves. We have a choice to choose your will, or we have a choice to choose our desires and what we so desperately want, at least in this moment. And Father, sometimes those two wills don't align. Sometimes they are a why in the road. Sometimes you are leading us places we don't want to go because you know there is grass in the valley. You know there is resurrection despite crucifixion. So God, God, we pray that we will trust in the will of our Father, not in the will of ourselves. Our will is fragile. It can be broken. It is futile. But God, we can trust in yours. God, we pray that in this window of, mo- of decision that we have right now or later today, God, we pray that it won't just be a winning the battle. It will be us winning the war in our life, turning towards you, turning the tide, running to the Father as the prodigal son. Whatever it is, Father, we look to your wills, not our own. And we humbly, as a church, Say this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.